Eastside fans, live from New York, it's Saturday night and one Sunday with the NLL's number one overall draft pick, Jeff T. One Sunday game, the most powerful offensive line featuring Jake the Slide Fox, Ryan the Dude Fournier, and Tyson T-Dog Gibson with former league points leader Callum Crawford, including the defensive prowess of Dan B. Cray McCray, featuring Eddie the Blue Tough Guy, your Riptide Dancer, the guy that pops up blood from an on-field altercation, and your host, PA extraordinaire and opposition antagonist, Colin Cosell. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. This is Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box, your source for Islanders Enforcer Talk. And now, once again, maybe a little Riptide Talk as well. So welcome to Episode 70, actual Episode 92. And my guest today is an old friend. So nice to do this show and uh, reconnect with some old friends. And uh, today is no different. I was able to reconnect with the... uh, Executive Vice President of the New York Riptide, Rich Lisk. Rich and I go back to his days where he was running the Trenton Titans. Uh, Rich was always a good guy, and uh, we hit it off. And uh, it was nice to see that he uh, he was uh, running the Riptide, I, I found out last year. And um, when I interviewed Nolan Clayton earlier this year, um, we discussed Rich a little bit. And uh, I knew I wanted to reach out to Rich and uh, interview him, uh, talk a little bit about his background, a little bit about the team, because um, this Saturday night, December 4th, is uh, New York Riptide opening night at the Nassau Coliseum. And, um, you know, for myself, someone that appreciates physical hockey, and I don't feel like I'm getting that anymore, um, lacrosse may be the way to go. And uh, I've been watching a few lacrosse bouts here and there, and um just talking to Nolan Clayton that time, he got me kind of juiced up for it. And uh, speaking to Rich, definitely got me juiced up for the season. And uh, I really would like to dive in head first 
to the sport and especially to the riptide. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, just a few things that uh, I always like to touch on. If you're on social media, please consider following the program on all these uh, platforms, like it, whatever it is uh, on Twitter. The um, Twitter handle is at Kali Sinbin pod on Facebook, facebook.com slash Coliseum Chronicles podcast. And on Instagram, Coliseum underscore Chronicles underscore podcast. Uh, I'm not going to pump the merchandise too much anymore. I will mention it. If you're interested in Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box merchandise, please scroll down slightly below the episode description of this very episode. I really need to stop saying episode description, just description. Take two. Kindly scroll down past the description of this very episode, and you'll see links for Coliseum Chronicles, the Penalty Box merchandise. One is for the classic logo. One is for the alternate logo. Please use discount code. This is a listener-exclusive discount code. HOLIDAYS20, H-O-L-I-D-A-Y-S-2-0. That HOLIDAYS20 code will get you 20% off everything in your cart, and that coupon code is good through New Year's Day, January 1st. 2022 and the reason why i love the merchandise so much is because the logo was drawn by local long island artist joe marisich if you're interested in any art projects joe is your man please reach out to joe at graphics joker on twitter or at loudegg.com let him know you heard about him on coliseum chronicles the penalty box i don't know if that's going to get you any sort of discount but um you know, it's always nice to know there's someone listening on the other end here, you know, and uh, Joe's a great dude and uh, and he'll definitely help you out. And if you enjoy this program, a few other uh, hockey fight programs you may be interested in. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me mention them before. And if you're a new listener, uh, maybe I'm introducing them to you and I'm happy to do so. The Fourth Line Voice podcast with my buddy Darren from Saskatoon. Uh, Darren is on a small hiatus as of late. Uh, he was very fortunate to sell his condo, moving into a house, and anyone that has ever moved knows what an undertaking that is. So Darren will not have any new episodes, maybe for uh, a week or so. Uh, he did not have a new episode Sunday. I do not foresee a new episode this Wednesday. So this is a great time to check out his back catalog. Uh, Darren is the one who started this whole uh, enforcer podcasting genre I mean, there may have been others before him that might have dipped their toe in the water or dabbled in it, um, but it's not for everybody, and um, and Darren started something really good here, and, um, you know, he's a good friend of mine. He's had some great guests on. He's also had me on, which I wouldn't consider a great guest, but definitely check out the 4th Line Voice podcast while he is on his mini hiatus. Check out the back catalog. I guarantee you. He's interviewed many names that you know. Check it out, 4th Line Voice Podcast. Also, check out the 4th Line Voice YouTube channel. If you have ever watched a hockey fight on YouTube, chances are it was on the 4th Line Voice YouTube channel. 2,600-plus hockey fights, and after he moves into the new house, I'm sure he's going to be uploading like a maniac. So go hit that subscribe button, check out some fights, listen to his podcast. You absolutely will not be disappointed. Another podcast I'd like to tell you about is my buddy Alec, Alec Olin Salen, live from Florida, the Five for Fighting podcast. 
Uh, Alec, uh, his latest episode was with Florida Everblade enforcer Nico Blackman. Uh, I think Alec is due for a new episode also. Uh, hopefully another one coming out this week or next. Alec does live episodes on his Enforcer Appreciation page on Facebook. Some of the episodes are solo episodes. Some of the episodes he has a guest. Uh, always good episodes. And if you miss them on, if you miss them live on the Enforcer Appreciation page, he always uh, publishes them later that week, usually on Tuesdays, I believe. I don't think he has a new episode this week. So similar to Darren and the Fourth Line Voice podcast, please take some time and check out the Five for Fighting podcast with Alec Olin Salen. Also, as I mentioned, uh, check out the Enforcer Appreciation page on Facebook. And Alec recently started an ECHL fight page on YouTube. I have to make a note of that. Uh, But if you check out the podcast, if you check out his social media, I'm sure uh, he'll mention that. So uh, lots of fantastic options if you're a fan of the rough stuff between uh, fourth line voice five for fighting and my program here uh i think we're we are uh i'm not i'm not afraid to say it honestly i listen to a lot of podcasts when it comes to podcasts done by people who have never been fortunate enough to drop the gloves i i honestly do think we cover the bases uh just as good if not better than anyone out there i'm not ashamed to say it i'm not I'm very humble, but uh, I take pride in what I do, and I know the boys take pride in what they do. So uh, I can honestly say if you if you give our shows a chance, I really don't think you'll be disappointed. That brings me to the 2021-22 Islanders slash Bridgeport fight report. And it's funny because last week I said Bridgeport Sound Tigers, and then I said Islanders. I didn't even realize I said the Sound Tigers, so... That's going to be a tough transition uh, transition for me. Take three. Transition. A tough transition for me. Going from Sound Tigers to Islanders. Uh, maybe I'll uh, I'll be fully complete um, with the change by the end of the season. I don't know. But I have one new entry since we last chatted. Paul Thompson uh, enters his name into the fight card for uh, Bridgeport with his first bout of the year against Tommy Cross of the Springfield Thunderbirds. Um, they've had a rivalry already, but uh, this time, this year, I'm, I'm saying uh, out of the eight fights that Bridgeport has had, seven regular season and one in the exhibition, it looks like one, two, three, four, five of those fights have been against the Springfield Thunderbirds. So, uh that may be a game I'll have to check out up in Bridgeport when Springfield comes to town. I think uh, I think it could be a lot of fun, and um, I'm really happy that my buddy Mike Cornell is getting a chance with Bridgeport. He definitely deserves it. So uh, so that's it. That's the only new entry on the Bridgeport side. On the Islanders side, uh, JG Pajot. So stand up if you had JG Pajot getting into the first fight in Islanders history at UBS Arena. Personally, I thought it was going to be Andy Andreoff, and I think in a different time when a player like Andreoff got was recalled, I think it would have been a no-brainer. I think he would have definitely been the guy to get the first fight for the team. But, uh, you know, as we all know, hockey's different now. I don't think it's for the better. But um, I think a lot of times you have the opportunity to make an impression, and that is usually the quickest way to make an impression. And Lord knows 
with all the COVID uh, that's with the COVID that's hit the Islanders, the injuries that have hit the Islanders, with Andy getting an opportunity to play now, uh, and he's playing well. Uh, you don't always get the opportunity to score goals. You don't always get the opportunity to make a nice pass. But uh, for someone like Andreev, who has his who has the uh, fighting in his arsenal, that would also be a way to make an impression. But uh, but no, JG Pajot has the first fight in the history of UBS Arena, uh, taking on Alexis Lafreniere of the Rangers. So uh, so congratulations to JG, and uh, we'll see what happens when uh, when the boys come back. So as you know, if you're an Islanders fan, finally the NHL finally got their heads out of their ass and um, postponed some Islander games. They postponed the game yesterday at the Garden. They postponed the game tomorrow in Philadelphia. So um, let's see what happens. Uh, this this uh, should have started last week. I understand it's a business. I understand you want to get opening night out of the way. So you know, make a compromise. Have opening night against Calgary and then postpone the rest of the games until this team is at full strength COVID-wise. I mean, injuries happen to everybody, but having six or seven guys out with COVID – and not even, I don't want to say not even considering it because I'd, I'd like to at least think they considered postponing the games, but to not postpone them, you know, it, it's ridiculous. And and I went into it last week. Um, however you feel about the vaccines, uh, one thing cannot be denied that uh, I believe, well, every Islanders player in the organization has been vaccinated and I'm 99% sure that every Islanders employee has been vaccinated. And as I said last week, the one player who did not want to get vaccinated um, was Bodie Wild. And Bodie Wild was uh, deployed to Sweden. And uh, Bodie Wild currently does not have COVID and he's unvaccinated. So, like I said, depending on how you feel about it, um, you know, but those are facts. You can't deny it. And uh, the latest entry to the uh, COVID list was Casey Zizekas, which really sucks. I mean, Casey's, I'm going to say he's one of my favorite players, but I think he's one of everybody's favorite players. So uh, so to everybody on the Islanders, uh, I don't know if any of you guys listen to the show, but uh, anybody associated with the uh, with the Islanders. Oh, and, and uh, I guess the latest rumor is there's three members of the Islanders staff that have COVID now, non-players. So... Man, anybody, anybody that's a part of the team, I just hope that everyone uh, gets well soon and feels better. The reality is we're missing some hockey games, but these are human beings, and uh, we don't know the long-term effects of uh, of COVID or the vaccine. So uh, I just hope that everyone gets healthy. The hockey will take care of itself once the club is at full strength. So uh, like I said, if anyone anyone from the team is listening to this and, and they're one of the people with COVID, uh, I just uh, get well soon. You know, there's really, uh, really nothing else to say about that. So um, getting back to the episode. So um, when the Islanders were in the playoffs last year and uh, and they unfortunately didn't make it past Tampa, um, the riptide really started uh, sort of cross-promoting uh, you know, trying to trying to uh, capitalize on the Islanders' playoff run and um, promoting promoting the team and promoting the sport of lacrosse uh, that they were going to be in the Coliseum and really just trying to uh, and and it was a smart move because 
what was happening was they were very active. Brett Malamud, who runs their social media stuff, uh, very active trying to, um, you know, promote themselves to Islanders fans. And uh, I'm one of those fans and um, it really piqued my interest. And as I said earlier, uh, I had Nolan Clayton on the show. He's a very physical goalie. He was really uh, hoping to be one of the goalies here with, uh, with New York, but it didn't work out. Uh, he's now with Buffalo and uh, I can't wait for Buffalo to come to town here. And um, obviously now the Riptide, you know, they're my favorite team. I have to root for Buffalo because Nolan and I still keep in touch and, and he's a great guy and I wish him nothing but the best. And uh, my chat with Nolan really helped me uh, light the fire uh, really for lacrosse now. And uh, when I interviewed Nolan, I got a lot of feedback from people that, that are lacrosse fans and they said, you're going to love it. it. It's really it really is a lot like the hockey that I miss. So I'm really anxious for that. And um, I know when, when I spoke with Nolan, I had mentioned that I had a relationship with Rich uh, years ago and that I wanted to get him on the show, but uh, I didn't want to get him on the show too early. I rather get him closer to opening night. And with opening night, like I said, this Saturday, I thought it was no better time to get Rich on the show to tell you about his background. Uh, I mean, Rich's uh, resume is pretty impressive. Um, we talk about that. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but uh, he's been a champion in a few places that he's been and, and a big part of building those championship teams. Uh, he has a background in a, um, a wrestling organization that I'm sure you've all heard of. Um, he's been with uh, other NHL teams and, uh, you know, his resume is second to none. And like I said, Rich is, uh, he's a grinder, he's a hustler and he's a winner. And, uh, I know that, uh, he will not rest until the riptide are champions of the league. And, um, I can promise you if you're new to the sport, like I am jump on board now, because it'll be fun to watch this team really from the ground up. I know that, I know that this isn't their inaugural season, but I think, COVID, kind, you know, obviously COVID screwed everything up in the world as far as lacrosse goes. I don't know if it really, um, if the team really got off the ground in terms of, of fan appreciation. And obviously the, the hardcore lacrosse fans are going to, are going to pay attention. But for, for people like myself uh, that are new to the sport, my interest in, in the riptide really came about once uh, they started pr going heavy with the promotion during the Islanders playoffs. And now uh, the time is finally here. So I personally, uh, I cannot wait to, for the season to start on Saturday. I think I have to check the train schedules. I am working on the Saturday, but I think I would possibly have enough time to get home, change, and get back to the Coliseum in time for opening night, which I really hope I'm able to do. So um, I want to wish everybody, uh, because I'm assuming I'm going to get some some new listeners, so maybe some lacrosse listeners, maybe some guys on the team. And uh, I just want uh, everybody associated with the Riptide to know I'm behind you guys 100%. I wish you guys nothing but the best, and I want nothing more to see what this team is capable of. And who knows, a few months from now, maybe – you're uh, celebrating a championship here on Long Island. Uh, it would be great to see it live and in living color. So with that, I want to uh, introduce everybody to a man I've known for a while, a good man and, um, and a winner. 
That's really all there is to say about Rich Lisk. The dude's a winner. He's a hard worker. And uh, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, my lacrosse education continues today. And uh, as you remember earlier uh, this year, I had Nolan Clayton uh, on. He was a prospective goalie for the New York Riptide. He's since moved on to Buffalo. So today I dipped back into the Joe Lazito Rolodex into uh, some of my history. And I'm reconnecting with an old friend from uh, his ECHL days. He's now the boss of the New York Riptide, and uh, and I'm really interested to reconnect with Rich Lisk. Uh, Rich, how's it going today? Joe, it's going great. Thank you for uh, thank you for that introduction. And and being a Jersey guy living in Long Island, when you when you say the boss, that makes me feel good because um, that's got Springsteen connotations. I don't get many Springsteen connotations in Long Island. Well, you, the boss could either be Bruce Springsteen if you're from New York or the Bronx. It could be George Steinbrenner. So you're in some pretty good company there. I'll take those. I'll take those. I'm a big Yankee fan and a big Springsteen fan. So that's good. So you just said you're a Jersey guy. So what part of uh, what part of yeah. New Jersey were you born in? I was born in a little town called. Uh, well, I was born in Red Bank, and I grew up in a town called Union Beach, which is about fifteen to twenty minutes north of Sandy Hook. I like to say it's the gateway to the shore. Some people will debate me on that, and um, and I lived there up until I uh, I left and, and went to the uh, went to get my first job. But I was there, and then I moved back and lived in the Princeton area in Lawrenceville for 25 years. So born and bred in Jersey is very close to my heart. So um, since I met you when you were with Trenton, let's, let's talk a little hockey. So growing up where you are, is that, was that, well, it was probably before the devils, but was that flyers territory? Is that Rangers territory? What team did you root for when you were younger? That was Ranger territory. And I was a huge Mark Pavlich fan. So I was a big, big Rangers fan. So I loved Mark Pavlich and the way he played. And then um, later on in life, I went to work for the Flyers organization, so I became a fan. But uh, my neighbor down the street, he had—he was one of the first season ticket holders of the Devils, and uh, we used to go every once in a while and, and see the games. And he had a—he had the seats right next to the tunnel where the players would come out. So uh, it was—it was pretty exciting and to see that. And I'm a big fan of their old uniforms. That the original uniforms were were the ones I liked. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I love the Christmas trees, uh, the green and the red. I oh, just, yeah. I, I love those. They remind me of those, those rough early days with Chico Rash and Gary Howard and those oh, guys, yeah. but, uh, the black and the red, I think is slick, but you know, nothing can, uh, nothing's ever going to be as good as the Christmas trees in my opinion. I couldn't agree with you more. Sometimes you go back to, you go back to what, what brought you to the dance. And I think I would love for them to go back to those. I love them. Uh, I agree 100%. And by the way, I uh, feel like congratulations are in order. Uh, you recently completed the Brooklyn Fall Half Marathon. And uh, yeah. I don't run. I try to run as little as possible. So when I see someone running and, and running at a distance like that, uh, that is just so impressive to me. Uh, when did you first start getting into the long distance running? It's funny. I've been running my whole life, kind of on and off and just, do, you know, doing things here and there. Never, ever, ever ran a race. And then my wife, who um, we met in high school, my wife and I went to high school together at St. John Vianney and Homedale. And then we went to college together. We've been together for 35 years. And she um, was turning 50. And she said, I'm going to write a 50 list. So she did a 50 list, 50 things to do in her 50th year. And one of the things she wrote was that she wanted to run a race. So I said, all right, we'll run together. So we were going to run a 5K. And this was uh, two years ago, 
in 18 and um she got a uh, we got a friend that said to us hey um we go down and, and we we kind of do the disney one we walk it and stuff like that do you guys want to do it so we said if we're going to do it we're going to run it so we trained for a good year and then in 10 16 weeks and the two of us trained together and we went to Disney and our goal was to do the Disney half marathon in three hours and finish running it. And we finished in uh, like three hours on the dot and finished running it. It was a great accomplishment. We were all excited. And then I got bit by the bug and I'm like, I got to keep doing this. And my wife's like, I'm one and done. She was one and done and out. And then I, um, I started training again in that October time frame. I ran the key West half marathon so I trained in New Jersey all summer thinking, this is great. I'll be fine. I get off that plane in Key West and it was, uh, it was hot. So my goal was to get as many miles in before that sun came up. So we started at like 530 in the morning. And I think I got like 10 miles in before like 730. And then the, the heat just kicked on. So I, I finished, my goal was to finish that in two hours and a half. And I finished in two and a half hours um, with a few seconds on there. So I was happy about that. And then COVID hit. And I just was running by myself and on treadmills. And then I, I really wanted to run another race. I love the competition. I miss it from you know being an athlete growing up and not having that competition. And I love the training. So um, I signed up for the Brooklyn one being here. I wanted to see do one in New York. And uh, I did that Brooklyn half. And my goal was to get in under two hours and 20 minutes. And I did it in 220 and shaved uh, 10 minutes off, ran my fastest of 1038 a mile and was excited and and now I'm looking for my next one. So I have a group of friends that um, they didn't run this Brooklyn one with me, but we usually try to go somewhere and run a, run a half marathon and then stay for the weekend and things. So it's a good way to see the country too. Well, congratulations. That is so impressive to Thank me. You. Uh, I could never dream of doing that, but uh, you know, I just, I could never either, but you could do it. I'm telling you, I never thought I could do it and you mm. can do it. It, it. I'm living testament of that of running, like one mile and dying and then walking a mile and, and, and you string 13 of them together. It's not, it's not as hard as everyone thinks. All right. Well, uh, maybe, maybe that's in my future and anyone who knows me right now is probably laughing their ass off, but you know, you never know, but, I, but that's really impressive. I, I just had to mention that. So, um, so let's talk about your journey and what led you to, to become uh, the man here with the riptide. You, your career is really interesting. Now, I met you when you were with Trenton, but before Trenton, you had mentioned that you were working for uh, Comcast, which is the parent company of mm -hmm. the Flyers. Uh, what were your duties uh, duties with uh, with Comcast? So when I got to Comcast, I was the marketing manager for Comcast Spectacore, which ran the Wells Fargo Center and ran the Spectrum at the time. The Spectrum was still there. And then we did all the family shows. We had the Wings lacrosse, and we had both hockey teams. They were launching the Phantoms, and we had the Flyers. So my job was to do family shows. So I had the, the first event I ever did for them and was the marketing manager for was the United States Postal Service Skating Challenge. So I had that one. I did Sesame. Uh, I did 10 shows of Sesame when we were there. And then um, I did marketing for the Wings, which really didn't need a lot. I did marketing for the Flyers, didn't need a lot. And then they started the Phantoms, and I got bit by the bug of hockey. And a guy named Frank Maselli was running the Phantoms, and yeah. he said, do you want to come over and be the director? So I, I became pseudo-marketing manager, director of the Flyers uh, marketing, of the Phantoms marketing, and, and loved it, and, and, and just loved it. And then um, after that, I went to Trenton's. But that's where I kind of got bit by the hockey bug was yeah. right there. My kids were starting to play, too, at that point. 
Yeah, it's funny you say that. We were in we were in Philadelphia, uh, you know, for about ten years, and we got to go to many Phantoms games. And obviously, like you say, the the Flyers, you don't need much help in marketing. Uh, lacrosse down there is huge. And then along come the Phantoms. And I guess little did did uh, I don't know if it was Bobby Clark at the time know that when he signs a guy like Frank Bialois, you have instant marketing right there with the Phantoms because oh, yeah. man, oh man, he was like a I mean he was just what a find for the organization because as soon as he takes the ice for the Phantoms, that was it, and and he just brought so much attention to the team. I don't know if you remember when Frank was there. Oh, I loved it. It was my greatest marketing tool. Yeah. There was one night Frank fought two Hershey Bears. Um, and that was holding them apart with his his hands. And I just looked at the guy next to me and said, "There's our commercial for the next game." And the next game, we sell out the Hershey Bears. So it was it was awesome. I, he was Frank the Animal by Lois. I did a, a promotion there where we gave out animal crackers, and then we did one where everyone had a Frank face on a stick, yep. mm-hmm. and uh, they would they would come out. So it was awesome. I loved it. And uh, maybe maybe your time with Frank uh, helped uh, train you for your next gig when you were. Uh director of pay-per-view for the wwe now i i I haven't really watched wrestling in in about 20 years or so i grew up with it back in the 70s but anyone that's a wrestling fan knows how important the pay-per-views are to to wwe and wrestling in general what did your what did your duties entail as director of pay-per-view sure when i got out of school i did my and this is a a a longer winded answer for this one so when i did my internship i did it at madison square garden and i was in the boxing department and I loved it. And I met a person by the name there, Steve Griffith, who's to this day is a very good friend and my mentor. And Steve taught me everything about marketing and PR and gave me an opportunity at age 19 to do those things. And then um, when I got out of school, uh, I was getting married and, and I needed a job. I was delivering beer and, and um, Steve and, and those guys hooked me up with some people and it, it wasn't really working out and sports they're trying to get my foot in the door. And then my wife-to-be girlfriend at the time, wife-to-be, her brother worked at Atlantic City, and um, he worked for the Atlantic City Press. His assistant was a person by the name of Marie Dillon. Marie Dillon's husband was a guy named Bernie Dillon, who ran all the boxing for Trump Plaza. So they brought me down for an interview. I went in to interview with Bernie, and I thought I was going to work for the Trump organization and do in boxing. I thought they were going to offer me a job. And at the end of the day, he goes, I don't have any anything, but if you're interested, you should call my friend at the world wrestling federation. And I was like, ah, do I want to get into wrestling? I really want to be in sports. And and it was interesting because when I was a kid, I I went to the first WrestleMania in, um, in Madison square garden. So growing up, I knew wrestling, but then you get out of it and, and things, but I needed a job. So I called this guy after a couple weeks and he goes, we just fired someone. Can you be in Stamford, Connecticut tomorrow? So I drove to Stamford, Connecticut from New Jersey, got there, had an interview. And this is when we didn't have cell phones or anything. And I was driving home, and I got home. They called me the next day and said, we want to um, hire you to come in to be a pay-per-view marketing coordinator at uh, like $22,000. And I was like, great, I'll take it. Yeah. So I took the job. I commuted to, from Jersey City to Stamford, Connecticut for six months. And then I wound up moving up there, and we got married and lived in Connecticut for five years. And everyone asked me what I did when I first got there. And years ago when you'd get your cable bill, you'd have a little piece of paper in the cable bill and that paper told you where to buy your WrestleMania or one of your pay-per-views. We only had four pay-per-views at the time. And that would tell you to go to channel 56 and pay thirty nine ninety nine for the event. I was the guy who put that bill in your bill. It was called a, a play bill. So I would put that play bill inside your bill. And then I did that for a year and I went to them and said, I'd really like to, uh, 
you know, come out and get out of pay-per-view. So they took me in the uh, live event marketing side of things. And I traveled the country with the wrestlers. And, and the basic job was they'd say, here's your budget. Here's your wrestling card. Go to L.A., live there for six weeks, promote the show, do everything from soup to nuts, do all the radio promotions, do all that. And then when you're done, go to Seattle. When you're done there, go to this place, go to that place. And I did that for um, about four years, three to four years. Loved it, was on the road a lot. Did some major events. I uh, I did the first King of the Ring in um, the Irvin J. Nutting Center in Dayton, Ohio. I promoted that. I pr- helped promote the uh, – I wasn't the lead promoter, but I was the, uh, the second promoter on um, the Lex Express when the Lex Luger slammed Yokozuna and started that whole thing on the Intrepid. And then I was the lead promoter for the uh, SummerSlam in Detroit at the Palace at Auburn Hills where Lex Luger fought Yokozuna. And then my last year, I had pay-per-view experience, so they brought me in to be the director of pay-per-view, and we raised our pay-per-views from 4 to 12. We, we started doing In Your House, and I was the guy who did all the advertising for that, spent all the advertising money, did the promotions on TV, bought the satellite, made sure the satellite got on and off. And then also one of my jobs was um, I exclusively traveled with Kevin Nash. We were going to make Kevin Nash the next Hulk Hogan, so wherever Kevin went – on um, promotional appearances, I went with Kevin and was his handler, and we traveled together for a year. And then, um, and then I went and worked for the Flyers. After that, I wanted to go home back to New Jersey, and Flyers were in Philly, so I was able to move to the Lawrenceville area and, and work in that organization and join Comcast Spectacor. But I learned a lot at the WWF. I learned probably more there. Um, I, I won't say more there than any job I've been in. I've been in a couple that I've learned a lot, but working directly with Vince McMahon for many years. Um, I learned a lot from Vince, especially at a young age. And, and I think that helped set the foundation of, of my, of my moving forward with my career. And I, I owe I, I owe them a lot of, a lot for where I am today. And that family, the McMahons were very good to work with and, uh, and did it, and they did a great job. And, and I, I tip my hat to everything they've done and, and, and I owe them a lot. That's awesome. That was, uh, I, I love the long wind. You said it was long winded and it was, but it was chock full of info. I loved it. That was great. So I, I think we're, we're, if we're not the same age, we're similar in age. I watched the first WrestleMania, uh, from the closed circuit TV at the Nassau Coliseum. They broadcast it from the sure. garden. Now this wasn't planned. So I'm going to say, I want to know around that time I grew up, Roddy Piper was my all time favorite wrestler. Who was yours? Yeah. Roddy Piper. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I, tra- I want- and I had a chance to travel with Roddy Piper, and I that was one of the highlights of my uh, of my tenure there. I when Roddy w- finally won the Intercontinental Championship, I did a tour of California with him, where we visited schools and did talks and radio promotions. And he was the first guy that introduced me to sushi. I'd never had sushi before, and he was also the first guy to introduce me to sake, which I don't know if that was a good story or a bad story. <laughs> um, but I he was my guy growing up was Roddy Piper. Yeah, it's it's funny when, uh, you know, that was my dad's not really a big sports fan, but he's the one that got me into wrestling and he hated Roddy Piper. And then for a while there, Roddy Piper had a little bit of, of a feud with Bruno San Martino and the son David. Oh, yeah. And and my dad mm-hmm. is, was born in Italy, so we were a Bruno household, but I sort of steered towards Roddy and it drove my dad crazy how much I love that guy. So uh, so that's awesome that you had some experiences with him. Maybe uh, another time we could talk about those. I would love to hear some stories. Oh, he was great. Roddy. 
Um, he was great. The guys that I worked with were awesome. Some of the guys I worked with were just great. Like Kevin Nash is a good friend. Billy Gunn is a good friend. Um, Bret Hart is a very good friend. I traveled with Owen Hart. I'm actually through lacrosse. I met Brett a few, uh, a couple of years ago and we got a chance to go to dinner in Calgary and stuff. So, oh, um, you try to keep in touch with a lot of those guys. They're, they're good people. And it's, it's funny. Cause you say you get to see them. We see them from, we see their characters, you know, we see the character that they portray on TV, but it's funny guys like Brett and Owen, I get that they were playing a character, but it seems like their characters probably weren't too far from how they were as people because it seemed like in, in their time, they were always, you know, when they were good guys, especially when they were bad guys, obviously they were playing the heel, but when they were good guys, you almost got the feeling that that persona wasn't far from reality. Not at all. Great people like uh, Owen's son. Uh, Oge yeah. was born the same time my son Bump was born. So um, we had that in common, which was great. I got a chance to meet a lot of the hearts. They were just great, great people that loved the business. That was what they loved. Like everyone has something yeah. that they love. And wrestling is what they loved. And they knew it very well. And they knew the psychology and things. Um, but just tremendous, tremendous people. So now we move on to your time with Trenton. And this is where you and I first yeah. met. And, uh, and I want to thank you yeah. because – uh, this, whatever this is that I have, like you say, there's things that you love. And my love was always the hockey fights and meeting the fighters and trading fight tapes with them and this and that. And, and, uh, it was always great that I got to know you and you helped me out. I, I got a chance to know Graham Belak pretty well, uh, sure. back when you had Graham there and, uh, and, you know, you didn't know me from Adam and you didn't know my family, but you always really, really treated us nice. And, uh, so I, I just want to say, I appreciate that because you didn't have to do that. And, uh, and that was very nice of you. So thank you. Um, how did you end no, I appreciate up? appreciate Thank you. Yeah, no, that was all you. That was all you. How did you end up in Trenton? Uh, and then did you did you start there as the president and GM of Trenton, or did you work your way up? Um, when when I knew they were going to put an ECHL team there, um, I applied for a job with those guys, and I did not start as the president and GM. I started as the assistant. I started as the vice president of marketing and sales. It was the owner was Jeff Berman. The Bermans owned the land and they built the building and they sold the land and the building back to the county and we kept the team. So Jeff Berman was our owner and then Brian McKenna was our president and GM and then I was the third employee they hired and then we had Aaliyah Bucks was our assistant. So it was the four of us in a bank right outside of Trenton Thunder Stadium. I started there July 6, 1998. First day I show up, I'm going to be the guy marketing and selling the team. I had no idea what the logo was. I had no idea what the colors was. They didn't tell me any of that in my interviews and things didn't. And then when they launched it on that day and I saw the colors and the logo, I said, I can work with this. Mm -hmm. And it just kicked off from there. So it was really Brian, myself, and Jeff from the very beginning. And uh, I, I did all the marketing, all the sales, all the game day operations, um, liaison to the arena and, and everything because it's such a it was small organization. We all did a lot. And that's what I loved, that I could be involved in everything. And then after a year or two, Brian came to me and said, um, what's your next goal? And I said, I'd like to one day be a GM. He goes, all right, I'll make you assistant GM. So I would start sitting in on contract negotiations with Brian and getting more involved with the team and going on the road and things like that. And then Brian moved on to become the commissioner in 2003. And then um, I, came, I uh, rose up to be the president and general manager in that 2003 time frame, I think it was 2002, 2003. 
And the first coach I ever hired was Bill Armstrong. Mm -hmm. He was with me for two years and now Billy's the assistant. Now Billy's the GM of the Arizona Coyotes and we still keep in touch and a really good friend. And then um, Billy moved on and left and went back to Providence and I hired Mike Havlin Mm -hmm. to come in. And then uh, Mike and I won the championship together that year. And then um, Mike and I, Mike grew up in uh, uh, Leonardo Middletown area. I grew up in Union Beach and when I got to the Titans, um, again, I was the vice president of marketing and sales assistant GM for the most part. And um, Mike was our assistant coach and he and I would sell merchandise together and he and I would do all the appearances together and we'd put them in a uniform so we could say, here's what our uniform is going to look like. So Mike's a very good friend and we keep in touch. I was just talking to him yesterday. Um, but that was uh, the Titans were, were a fun time for, for both of us there. I'm glad that you you went into such detail because I think with uh, the major league sports, general ma- some general managers almost become celebrities and 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 uh, you know sort of iconic. And I think sometimes people just think, well, all ge- general managers do is they sign contracts, they trade for players. But in the minors, you guys have so many more uh, duties than than like you say player contracts or trades. And I'm really glad that you went into that because I've known I've known people in those positions and you know it almost is the contract portion or the trade portion and and especially lower level a lot of that is handled by the parent clubs but you those are only a fraction of your duties down there as a general manager it it's got to and you must your everyday duties are probably larger than those duties as the gm absolutely we you know we oversaw all the ticket sales all the sponsorship sales all the player housing because in the ECHL we had to pay for the housing um, I used to go in and and my first couple of years clean the apartments and wow. store the furniture and in storage units and rent that was the other thing I became a landlord and rented out our apartments because we had year leases and the guys would leave and I'd have to sublease them and then have to get those people out in time so we could get the players back in when they got here set up all their meals do all the appearances, do all the travel. The ECHL, it's all by busing. So you're getting, you're trying to get sleeper buses ahead of other teams and, and then go on the road and take care of that. So it's soup the nuts. Yeah, I mean, I maybe did a little bit of the, uh, uh, part of my day was the, the actual operations of the team and doing trades and things like that. That's, like you said, it's a minute part of what you do. It's all the other things and, and taking care of the players and, and making sure, especially in a town like Trenton, where they lived in Bordentown. And I wanted our guys to be, you know, really good citizens. And I wanted them in the marketplace. And I lived there. My kids went to school there. And I wanted to make sure that they represented us well. So all those appearances, like going to the Applebee's on Route 1 in Lawrenceville and making our guys be waiters and things like that, like all that falls on our shoulders. It's not. Uh, it, it's not that you just go and watch practice and say that guy didn't practice. Well, I'm going to trade him. <laughs> that that was the small part of the deal. Uh, how is it interesting to have? Uh, I know for a period of time, Trenton had a dual affiliation with the, the Flyers and the Islanders. Uh, how mm-hmm. does that make it more difficult when you're dealing with two parent clubs instead of one? Depends on which parent clubs you deal with. Uh, the Islanders and the Flyers were great for us. Um, they and they actually did a good job by sending us five to six guys on each side. So you weren't really going out and signing a lot of your own players. You were kind of doing a third, a third, and a third, which was which was good. They always sent us good players. And if you have good interaction with your parent clubs, I think it makes it, it makes a better relationship. Some people have no interaction with their parent clubs and just get 
players sent to them. But the Flyers, to give you an example, like I go to all of their practices um, in training camp and and know what the guys we were going to get. They would help us cross promote and send stuff to their season ticket holders to come down and see their players and and things. That was a great working relationship. The Islanders were a little different because they were just a little further away. Mm -hmm. But we had great relationships with the Islanders, too. And they sent us some, you know, some really good players like Stephen Valiquette and Justin Wood and guys like that. Dan Tetro, mm-hmm. which worked out real well for us. And uh, Mike Santos was an assistant GM. I think the GM at the time was Mike Milbury, and yes. assistant was Mike Santos. Correct. We had a great relationship with Mike Santos. In Philly, I had uh, uh, Holmgren and uh, Paul Holmgren and Ron Hextall. We had great relationships. Um, so I was, I, was, I was blessed to have that. I think it was a great working relationship back and forth. Um, I think our proximity helped too. I don't know if we'd have that relationship if I was with Edmonton mm-hmm. or Vancouver or someone like that. But being in that marketplace with those two teams, it was it was great. Uh, what what was your? Um, uh, well, I say, what are the duties of an alternate governor? Which you're also an alternate governor uh, for the ECHL. What does that entail? So you go to all the board of governors meetings, you help with the rules and and the business of the league and um, anything that comes down from a marketing standpoint, they run by the governors before they do things, league deals, um, any, anything with the players on their side, um, any CBA negotiations, they would run by the governors first and and things like that. So we were involved in that and then changing any of the bylaws, changing any of the rules, um, anything that goes on with the running of the league, two representatives from each team in the ECHL, even now, in the um, in the National Lacrosse League, we have two representatives from every team that works with the league office to do that. So I, I've been fortunate enough to sit on that with the ECHL and the NLL. So this is sort of a I, I want to say a stupid slash rhetorical question because obvi- uh, no, you're, you'll see because obviously the answer is going to be something like incredible or amazing when you when you're uh, a part of a team that wins a championship, like you had mentioned that you won the Kelly Cup in 0405. What is that feeling like when the final buzzer sounds? It's amazing. You know, it, it, in 0405 with Mike Haviland, um, I was I was actually at the tail end of my career with the Titans there and was moving on to another to another opportunity. So um, I, 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 I loved it. It was great. I wish I absorbed it more because I was kind of done everything I could do there in Trenton and I was moving on. So I didn't really enjoy it the way I think I, I could have and, um, and, and, and probably should have looked at it differently. I will say then when I moved on from Trenton and I went to the Philadelphia Soul in the Arena Football League, um, I had an opportunity there for three years. I was with them for three years and I had an opportunity in my last year and we did win the championship there. And I can tell you everything that I missed with Trenton I did not miss with the soul and I absorbed it and took it in and stood back and looked at it and thanked my, you know, um, thanked my lucky stars and, and was really grateful for that opportunity because in, in, in Trenton, again, I was, I was moving on to another thing. So it was uh, it was a little, it was a little bittersweet at that point, but with the soul, it was, um, it was really, really special, really special. And, and when that, buzzer goes off at the end you can't imagine the sigh of relief you have because all the hard work you put in it feels and i know people say this but it feels like a weight has been lifted and then underneath that weight is this elation that oh my god i can't believe we're the best at what we've done you know we're the best we were arena football league when i was in it was 
was the top line of arena football, right? That was it. We had Bon Jovi as our owner. We had NFL owners. We were on ABC TV. We had 16,000 people in New Orleans watching that game. And to be able to stand there and say, wow, I'm the best. I have put together an organization here, and, and we were the best of the best. And that makes you feel really, really good. So I want to talk about Philadelphia sports fans because uh, they sometimes get a bad rap. Uh, like I said, we were down there for 10 years. I saw I saw the good and the bad. And, and my contention is that I think a lot of times their passion, it, it, it goes overboard. But I, I think the media also blows it out of proportion. I, I think Philadelphia sports fans are the epitome of blue-collar fans. They love their teams. They're passionate about their teams. And it's not just with the Eagles or the Flyers or the Phillies. I mean, like you say, they come to watch the Soul. They go to watch lacrosse. They they went to watch the Phantoms. Uh, what was your experience with, with the fans of Philadelphia, who I think are probably some of the most misunderstood uh, fans in all of sports? Could not agree with you more. I mean, I've spent most of my career in the Philadelphia marketplace, so could not agree with you more. And I, I've noticed a lot of similarities between Philadelphia and Long Island fans. Um, I was saying this the other day to somebody. Um, when Bruce Cassidy, and I'll get back to your question. I just yeah. wanted to tell you this quick story. But when Bruce Cassidy, Butch Cassidy last year called the Islanders the Saints, and that yeah. whole thing took off. Mm-hmm. The irony of that whole thing is that Bruce Cassidy – um, we call him Butch, was my first coach in, in the East Coast League. Mm. And um, we had him for our first year. And and people were asking me, oh, do you think he knew about the Saints? He did not know that there was a Saints team here before. He was trying to make a joke about it. Yeah. And every and the and and the island the island fans were so protective over that. Mm. Now they could say it possibly, but nobody was going to say it about their team. Yep. And I did this uh, uh, interview afterwards and I was like, no matter how bad a, a team on the Island or, or, or New York team is, the fans wrap their arms around it and we can say whatever we want about these guys, but you can't, mm. that's a lot like Philadelphia. Yep. Like, I think those markets are very, very close. And again, my biggest stint there was with the phantoms. And then when I was the GM of the, uh, of the arena football league, the soul. And, and I, I, I can tell you this, I, I don't take credit for um, a, a lot there because my owner was John Bon Jovi. I mean, I had John Bon Jovi as an owner and I had Ron Jaworski as an owner mm-hmm. and they were the best business cards you could ever have. And we did really well there in Philly. I mean, we played at the Wells Fargo center. We sold 93% of that building out every single night for three years. Mm-hmm. We had over 16,000 fans in that building. We did a parade when we won. We had 50,000 people show up for the parade. Um, we were embedded in that marketplace. And that had a lot to do with John and, and Ron. And I was just along for the ride and, and, and incorporating what they wanted to do. And I learned a lot from those two guys. And, and their passion for the sport, um, John and Ron, were second to none. Second to none of people I've worked with. They, uh, everyone loved Ron is a Philadelphia icon oh, yeah. and John is a football icon. He loves it. So it was fun and special to do that. And I love the fact that they, before I got there, they marketed the team a lot through John, mm-hmm. you know, he'll do a con they'll do a concert. If you become a season ticket holder, if you're a season ticket holder, you get a guitar and a football signed by John. And you can only live on that for so long. Like you'll have Bon Jovi fans, um, watching his game, but we wanted to develop soul fans mm-hmm. and we started to wean them off of that. And I can tell you when we wean them off of that, we didn't lose a lot. 
Right. Like you lost, you know, some of the Bon Jovi fanatics that just wanted to come and see him. But for the most part, they were Philadelphia's sole fans. And we would do radio shows and pack places. And and John, you know, he, he we kind of got him out of the spotlight a little bit because we had to see if we could stand on our own two feet. And and we did. And that was exciting because those were people that probably weren't arena football fans in Philadelphia. They were football fans um, through the Eagles. But that was another thing. Like we didn't really model after the Eagles much. Like our colors were different. Logo was different. Things like that. And and I, it was exciting to see that take off and see it develop into a whole nother fan base, which I don't know how many markets would have done that. Like, but I think Philly is a perfect market for that. And I think Philly bought into it and Philly bought into us being a blue collar, hardworking made up of, as John used to preach. And I use it today in my repertoire, men with character and not characters. That's what we put on the field. And they took to it, which was exciting to see. I love it. I love hearing it from the inside. Like I said, I, I know, uh, obviously being here on the Island, I know a lot of, uh, giant fans and they always have comments about Eagles fans and Flyers fans, you know, Rangers fans. I just say, look, I spent 10 years down there and I'll, I'll go to bat for that bunch of people down there. I loved my time there and I love their fan bases. So, uh, so it's nice to hear it from, from someone that was working from the inside. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. I, I put those, I, again, I think those fans are very, very close to the Long Island fans and the New York fans. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want. Like I, people used to say to me all the time. Um, and we were built when I was in New England with the black wolves, we were building a whole new thing up there. And, and we let one of our players go and we had 150 people write about it and they were ripping me and stuff like that. And people like, Oh my God, are you upset? They're ripping you. And I'm like, no, because they're becoming fans. Mm -hmm. If nobody rips you, and nobody comments that nobody cares doesn't matter right they're fans of the team now they have a vested interest they are passionate they're so passionate that we did something that they're going to tell me their opinion i love it i'd rather have that than have silence and that so that was good for me i was fine with it i'm okay to hear bad things because i can't fix things if i don't know they're bad and i'm okay if you say something that i did was stupid and I'll be more than happy to explain it to you. And I used to take a lot of time to explain our thoughts behind different things because they're passionate and I'm okay with that. I love it. Uh, so how did you end up as a scout with the Niagara ice dogs? <laughs> so being in hockey, which was, uh, which was great. I love hockey and all that. I had a coach in, um, I had a coach in Philadelphia when I got into lacrosse and he was with the wings and then he came to new England with me, his, family owns the Niagara Ice Dogs. Okay. And they just bought the Niagara Ice Dogs and he was saying, Oh, my GM, he used to be in hockey with the Titans and all that. And I started talking to him and they said, Hey, would you want to be a scout? Keep your hand in hockey and do the East Coast, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania. And uh, I said, sure. It kept yeah. me in hockey and it was great. And I'd have meetings with them and give them my draft board and things. And both my sons were playing. So I was seeing that level of hockey anyway. I was at rinks. And I'm like, I'm at a rink with my oldest son who's at draft age, so I can see all the guys you should be seeing. And one year they took one of our guys up there and drafted him to the O, which was nice. Yeah. And then I gave them a list of about five or six other guys that just didn't fall to the board. But I'm, the five or six guys I did give them actually made it into the O and played, so that was good. Oh, excellent. Uh, so you yeah. alluded you alluded to the Black Wolves. So that is the uh, New England Black Wolves. Uh, this was your yes. first foray into into lacrosse at, at that at the level of general manager correct 
Well, I was in Philly for two years with them before we became the Black Hole. So I was with the Philadelphia Wings okay. as their COO and then became their GM um, the last year. Then we got sold. Mm-hmm. And when we went to New England, they had a WNBA team set up there mm-hmm. called the Connecticut Sun, who had a GM named Chris Sienko. And the deal we had was we were 50-50 partners with them. So our guys in Philly owned 50% and Mohegan owned 50%. Okay. So when we got there, Chris said, listen, as as the 51 or 50% owner of the team, um, I'm going to be the GM of the team, but I'm not really going to have much to do with it. You be the assistant GM and, and run the lacrosse side. So I was the assistant GM the first year mm-hmm. and uh, did the lacrosse side. And then after that, they came to me and said, yeah, we're going to, Chris isn't going to be the GM of the team anymore. You, you're the GM. So officially took over as the, the GM my second year in New England. Um, but I was the GM in Philly and the assistant GM slash GM the first year in New England. Okay. And then that brings us to your current role, executive vice president of GF Sports and Entertainment. And uh, that includes overseeing, I guess, the day-to-day operations of the Riptide. How did you hook up with GF Sports? Yeah, so um was with New England for about six or seven years, um, doing loving it, but um, everything was great. And I had a, a good friend, Sean Tilger, who was with the Flyers, and he became uh, an advisor and then became the president of GF Sports. And Sean called me and said, you know, you know the league, you've been in the league, let's talk. So we started talking, and he said, you know, why don't you come on board here and, and, and help me build out GF Sports. And uh, GF Sports also has two tennis events. We have an AKC event with the American Kennel Club. We have a concert series. We own the rights to the Wolfpack Ninja Warriors, which is American Ninja Warrior. The athletes are called Wolfpack. So we own the rights to that. And we put those shows on. And um, Sean's job is to find us other sports and entertainment events. And they bought an NLL team. And um, the owners uh, launched it in their inaugural season. Um, I don't think it was going the way they wanted it to go. Sean was brought in as president to clean up, uh, to clean it up and to uh, grow GF Sports. He approached me about coming. We, my wife and I were uh, in the process of probably moving. So we said, okay, it's a good opportunity. Um, it gives me an opportunity to branch out and do other sports and do other things, which I was excited about. I like, wanted to work with Sean again. He's a great guy, and, and we've done a lot together. So I was excited about that, and we were going to move. So we said, all right, let's do it. So I moved to uh, Long Island and, and jumped in here because – the Riptide is probably one of the bigger things in our portfolio, and I've had the most experience with them. They, I started off doing the business side of things when I first got here, and then after a couple months, they said, we want you to take over the lacrosse side of things. So I took over both entities and, and, and basically became the, the president of the team. I want to I want to say something uh, for people that know me well. They know that I'm I'm a family guy. I'm very much into my family, my wife, my kids, and you've mentioned your wife a few times in this interview. And I just want to like say that you know you've gone from place to place, different roles, and without a wife that supports you and is willing to pack up and go from city to city, maybe this dream that you're living right now and this career that you have isn't possible. And I just think, you know, I think a lot of times people look at people in sports or entertainment almost as just like names they see on the computer, but you're actual human beings. And without the support of your family, you can't do what you do. And I always think it's it's good to acknowledge the, the people in the family behind the scenes that are willing to say, this is your dream. Let's go for it. Let's move from New Jersey to, to New, you know, Connecticut, New England, to Philadelphia, to Long Island, because without without our families, then we really were nothing. 
you know? I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, um, and this one's going to be a long winded answer, but <laughs> my, um, my wife and I, again, have been together since we were 17 years old. I met her in high school. We went to the prom together. We went to college together. Um, we 30 going on 35 years. Um, my wife's been through a lot. Listen, I, um, and I, I've talked about this before on podcasts, and I, I will say she's my best friend. She is the rock. She is the reason I'm walking the face of this earth today. Um, when I was growing up, I was in an abusive household, and my stepfather, my mother remarried a guy when I was five years old, and my stepfather abused me from the age of 10 to the age of 18. Wow. And um, I left my house at the age of 18 and never went back. And if it wasn't for my wife, I'm – I'll be honest, I've struggled with depression. I've struggled with um, some mental things with um, growing up because of that trauma and the PTSD that came along with it. And if it wasn't for my wife, I wouldn't be walking the face of the earth today. She was the one that helped get me through it. And she's, I, I always say she's an angel that was, that was sent. She hates when I say that she's a saint, so I won't say she's a saint, but <laughs> she was an angel that was sent to, to, uh, to take care, to, to get me through that because if she wasn't here, there's no way I would be here today. And sports has been my outlet. And I, I, I played sports growing up, but then I knew I wasn't going to be good at sports and playing it. So I wanted to get in on the, on the business side of things. And, uh, and, and, and she's given me that opportunity to do that. Even when I was struggling in college, when I didn't have a home to go to, and I had no way of paying for college, uh, I would fill out all these Pell Grants and scholarships and things. And then my wife would work almost full time while she was in school to help pay for my books so I could get in and, and, and do that. And then, um, and, and she's been, she's, she's gone through more things than someone probably should go through. Um, but she stuck through it and, and, and things. And, and again, if it wasn't for her, I, I can honestly tell you, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you today. So yeah, I, I think when people, um, talk about their career and, and things like that, um, they, they, they should acknowledge that. Uh, I have no problem being vulnerable and talking about that. It is who I am. It's, it's, it's where I came from. It's not who I am. It's what happened to me. And people have to help you get through that. And if it wasn't for her helping me get through that, it would have been a different conversation. Oh, that's amazing. I had no idea you were going to say all that, and uh, I'm glad that I'm glad you are where you are today, psychologically, physically. Uh, I, I'm glad you're you're where you are, and I'm glad that your wife played a, a major role in that. That's really uh, inspiring. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I people don't like to talk about it at times, and I had a tough time talking about it for years, um, and I wouldn't talk about it. No one would have known about it. But I'll tell you, when I was with the Soul, I went through a tough time, a real tough time. And I, when I, got, I go to schools and talk to a lot of kids and things about sports marketing. And then one day I went to the school and talked to a bunch of kids about sports marketing. And somehow we got on this conversation. That was the first time I ever opened up and told anyone that what happened to me. And um, one kid came up to me at the end and said, you know, that's a good story. Can we talk a little bit more? So he and I talked a little bit more. And the teacher came up to me afterwards and said, we think he's being abused. And uh, that kid got out of his situation. And I said, if I could help one kid do that. So when I was back in New Jersey, I was on the board of uh, Child Abuse New Jersey. I was a spokesperson for them. I used to go and speak about it. And I want people to know that you don't have to go down the path of drugs and alcohol. I could have, and I did not go down the path of drugs and alcohol. I could have went down the path of not following my dream. I could have let that define who I was or I took the power of sports, and I used to say when I played baseball, because I was a baseball player, 
um, that no one could touch me on the field. Like when I got on the field, the, the foul lines almost became walls. So my father couldn't get to me in there. And that team became my family and the camaraderie and sticking up for each other and all of that. I've learned a lot of lessons through sports. So I, uh, I go to schools and, and talk to kids about that. And, and listen, on the outside, you know, we wouldn't have looked like a family that you would have had an abused kid in. We were middle class, went to a Catholic high school and things. So people would have looked at us and been like, oh, they're fine. Like, that's a good family. And we weren't because no one knows what goes on behind closed doors. Right. So um, I, I think it's important that when people you know, like myself that have been through things like that can give back to the community. And that's a huge piece of what I like to give back to everybody. Yeah, wow, that's uh, that's tremendous. You've probably helped more people than you'll ever know, and that, I think that's tremendous. Um, if you go to your LinkedIn and you look at your work experience, you know what that says to me? That says hustle. <laughs> and, uh, and to me, hustle appreciates hustle. And I want to talk about one of your employees who I've known since he was a little boy, and that's Brett Malamud, your uh, oh, yeah. manager of marketing and social media. So I am friends with Brett's dad. And uh, and Brett was raised in a sports household, and I'm not surprised to see what he's done. And I know he's he's worked for uh, Buffalo Bills. Uh, now he works for you guys, and I see all the stuff that he does on your social media. Now, as someone who who obviously sports and marketing is in your blood, uh, when you look at someone like Brett, uh, it's got to make you smile to see how much this kid cares. Absolutely, I, I say it all the time. He's a uh... He, he does hustle. He does care. I say, Brett, you have so much passion for what you're doing. That makes me excited. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, we're, you're young. You're green. So that's going to happen. There's going to be mistakes here and there and things like that, or you're going to learn. But I can't teach passion. Mm-hmm. I can teach you the right, proper ways of doing things, but I can't teach passion. And I always say I'd rather have a horse that I need to bridle than a horse I need to kick. Yep. And he cares about what he does. He's, 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 he's passionate about what he does. He is growing every day. And I told him a few weeks ago, I said, you know, Brett, a lot of, of people in my position or someone in, in leading the organization wouldn't say this, but I don't want to see you sitting in that chair in five years. Mm-hmm. I want to see you running the social media or media department for a major sports team. Yeah. And shame on me for wanting one of my employees to leave, but I, I, I don't want that. I I'm here to also help move him on and, and make sure he gets everything out of his life he wants. And I think he's on the right path. I think he's really on the right path. He's a, he's a good, he's a good man. Yeah. It comes from good stock his, his old man's a good man. And uh, his mom is wonderful. Uh, he, they're a great family. So, uh, so I'm not surprised. Um, and no, and what you said about wanting to see him progress, that's just a sign of a good leader. I don't think a good leader wants to keep his, uh, his troops down. I mean, you want them to, uh, you want them to rise up and expand and, and be all that they can be. So, uh, so I think that speaks volumes about, uh, about both of you. And, uh, one thing I want to ask, and I think you are the perfect person to answer this question with your background. No, and you'll understand okay. Lacro- lacrosse, the NLL, it's bigger than it's ever been. And now mm-hmm. they signed a TV deal with both ESPN and TSN. Just how big is this for the league? probably the biggest thing that's happened to the league ever to be quite honest with you the league's 35 years old 36 years old if you count covid um they've never really had a deal like this before 
you know, there are times where you go and you buy games on ESPN or you buy games on CBS Sports Network and put your stuff on. But this is a true, true broadcast deal. And this is a true um, deal like you would see at any major sports level. And coming out of COVID after 18 months, an abbreviated season, to get a deal like that, it was it, – it's monumental. I Again, I'll go back to it. I think it's probably – in the history of the league, one of the most important things to happen to this league, because we're at a point now where we're at 15 teams, 16 coming, 14 this year, 15 next year, and they're going to add a 16th. Um, when I first got into the league, we were at nine, and we hovered around nine for a few years. So to be at 15 teams starting next year, that's huge. But if you, like, like people say, if you cut a tree down in the forest and no one hears it, did it really happen? Right. We were kind of toiling on. No disrespect to like Bleacher Report Live and uh, YouTube and things like that. To be able to get TSN and ESPN to sit up and say, "Yeah, we believe in what you guys are doing. We want to put you on the. We want to put you on and make it become your broadcast partner with you guys and and put a and put 150 of your games on ESPN Plus and TSN Plus and have 10 linear games and 20 linear games and and, and your playoffs. That's huge. That when when everyone looks back on this league. This year, these deals will be one of the big pillars to move this league to the next level. So it's it's a huge deal. It's 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 changing the league deal. All right. So now let's talk about this year. This this Riptide team. We'll talk about some of the personnel. Uh, I think one of the key things whenever you're trying to establish an organization in a, in a region is uh, you have to bring some credibility to the sport and your general manager, Jim Veltman, uh, I think as far as uh, I did a little research on him, this guy is a NLL legend. So you have a guy here with credibility with this coaching staff, with the players, and he's someone that really is a, is a presence as far as the NLL in, in general. Uh, when you have a guy with those credentials, what does it mean to have him running the team? Oh, I, 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 um, I'll give you a story about Jimmy. Jimmy was with me in New England. So when I was the GM in New England, Jimmy, after our first year, we went four and 14. It was, uh, I don't know if I was a good GM or not because, uh, the first two games we won really handily and everyone thought we were going to be great. And then we went two and 14 down the stretch. So that was a little hard. And, and we moved on from our coaching staff and we interviewed Jimmy and Glenn Clark. And um, Glenn and Jimmy kind of came as a pair together. They interviewed together. And they wanted to work together. And Glenn had a little more head coaching experience. So we, we took Glenn as the head coach and Jimmy as our defensive coach. So I got a chance to know them there. And then this will tell you the kind of person Jim Veltman is when he took the job. We knew that Jim was going to take a year off to do uh, missionary work mm-hmm. and, and go overseas. He did it once before and he was doing it with his family. Now they were at an age where his kids could go. So a year after our first year, so it would have been our, our third year going in, Jimmy um, went away and did a mission and um, came back. And then after when he came back, we talked again about him joining the Black Wolves. He joined for a little while, and then he had to take off for personal reasons, and, didn't, and, and we moved on. So when I left New England and came here, I sat down with the coaches and I, well, I should say this, I sat down with the players and, and started doing interviews. And when we had these interviews, 
I keep journals. I'm a big journal guy. So I was writing everything down and these words kept coming up in a bad connotation. Then I went to the owners and I said, what do you want to be? We have one owner we deal directly with Eric Baker. And I said, Eric, what, what do you want to be? And he goes, I want to be the premier team in the league. And I said, I noticed you said not one of the premier teams. You want to be the premier team. And he said, yeah, Rich, I want to be the premier team in the league. And I said, okay. So I went back and I looked at the words that I was writing down with the players. And I noticed that it said pride, passion, and promises were all in a negative connotation. So I said, okay, if we have passion for this team and get the right people, that will create pride. And I will not break my promises to the team and the team will not make their promises to us. We will be the premier team in the league. So we live by the power of Peter the fourth power. It's on all of our shooting shirts. It's on our shooting shorts. It's on our goalie's helmet. You'll see a Peter the fourth power. And that's what that means. Passion, pride, promises, and premier. And when I sat down and did that, and then we made the move with our lacrosse operations staff, I said, I'm going to need somebody to, uh, to work with me to make sure that we deliver on P to the fourth power. And I want men, and I'll use this from Bon Jovi. He said, I want men that have character, not characters. And I, the other part that I added was I wanted people to come to Long Island to want to be part of the riptide and help us grow something and not be just lacrosse player. If you wanted to come here to play lacrosse, there's 14 other teams I'll ship you to. I want you to help us build something. So when I put all that together, I said, okay, we got to get a new coaching staff and a new GM. Where do I start? And I said, Jimmy, Jimmy's where I start. Jimmy is, Jimmy's the guy that's going to help me build the culture here. He and I work very well together. You can't ask for a better human being. And if they had a Mount Rushmore of the NLL, he'd be the number one guy on the Mount Rushmore of the NLL. Wow. So you're, you're, you take the good person, good character, good morals, good human being, mix it with being one of the best players to ever play the game, mix it with having a great relationship and understanding the message that I wanted to get across that we already worked together and did that. Jimmy was a number one logical choice to do it. It was just me calling him to see if he would do it. And I remember calling him and saying, Hey, can I talk to you? And he thought I was calling him to run some coaches by him. And he said, you know, have you found a coach and GM yet? And I said, no, I'm going to split the position. And uh, he goes, what do you think? Who do you got? You want to run some names by him? I go, no, I want to run Jim Veltman by you. And uh, he had no idea I was going to offer him the job. And it, it wasn't even an interview. It was, Jimmy, I want you to come and do this with me and, and be the leader at the top and get across what we, we did in New England together and, and, and build that culture. That's what we lacked here a lot was culture. And I wanted to change the culture because I think I can find players that can that can put a ball in the net and keep a ball out of the net. That's this job, right? You got to find players that can put the ball in the net. You got to find players that can keep the ball out of the net. We can do that. But what's that X factor that makes you win is culture. And Jimmy is the right guy to help me build that culture. And it's funny that you talk about culture because for years I've been talking about the culture around the Islanders. And when you bring in a Lula Murillo and a Barry Trotz, that completely changes the culture. And I, and I'm, I'm fond of saying it and people that know me are probably sick of me saying it is as Islander fan, as an Islander fan, it's nice to know we now have adults running the show. So in this case with your GM, with, with Jim Veltman, you also team him up with a guy, Dan Latisor, who uh, Nolan told me a lot about. Uh, speaking of a presence, this guy seems like he defines the word presence. Uh, he was a very physical player throughout his career. I think he's, in it. I guess, uh, the guy you'd want on your side because he's just an intimidating guy, but I'm sure he's a sweetheart when uh, when you get to know him. But tell me a little bit about Coach Dan. He, um, So Dan, I knew a little bit. 
I, I didn't, I, I knew him just from being an assistant coach in the league. I didn't know him personally. Um, I knew a lot of people that knew him personally. So when I was started the process, he was the first guy I interviewed and we spent three hours on the phone together. And here's a guy who played with Jimmy. They won five championships together. I believe very good friends came from a good pedigree. And when I say that, there was a coach in the league years ago called Les Bartley, and a lot of the guys learned under Les Bartley. So there's like this group of guys, these group of coaches that um, I, I, I am familiar with because my old coach, Jimmy, and my old coach, Glenn Clark, and Jim Beltman are in that Les Bartley era and, and learned under Les. And then it was Derek Keenan and Eddie Como and Dan Latasor. And then Dan worked under Derek Keenan, Dan worked under Eddie Como and won a championship. He won five championships as a player with Jimmy. He's made his, he's paid his dues. So he was on the next logical step to take that next step. And when you go and look for coaches, there's always two or three guys that everyone's like, oh, he's the next one. He's the next assistant to move up. Dan was at the top of that list. So when I started interviewing Dan, I was looking for a leader. That's what I wanted. I thought we lacked leadership here. No disrespect to the old regime. It was just the way it was. I wanted a different leader. And here's a guy who can win on the field. He won off the field as an assistant coach. And then he's also uh, you know, a SWAT sergeant in the Durham police. And he has played the game at the highest levels. The one thing I didn't do was tell Jimmy I was kind of interviewing Laddie and tell Laddie I was interviewing Jimmy because I didn't want either of them to kind of take the job based on the other one until I got to a point that I was satisfied and happy that they would be together. And then I told them and they started talking and they're very, very good friends off the field. So that camaraderie works real well. Um, but he, he, I interviewed probably 10 guys. I interviewed him first and, um, and I get, and, and I, I wanted to interview 10 guys and I had great conversations with a lot of the guys and a lot of them were really good, but the first was the best and he was the best in those interviews. And I went back to him and offered him the job and, um, it was, it, it's been a great match since. One of the players I was really looking forward to watching this year, uh, was Andrew Suter. Uh, but I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, yeah, he was he was the guy I was really looking forward to watching this year. And uh, good for him. He retired, uh, I guess, uh, for other opportunities and to spend more time with his family. Uh, so for someone like me who wanted to watch Suits, uh, how do you replace a guy like Andrew Suter? You don't. Hmm. You don't place a guy like Andrew Suter in a way. I've had Andrew and Andrew has become a very, very good friend of mine. I've had Andrew on um, the Black Wolves a couple of times. I mean, I've had, uh, you know, we, we've parted ways and came back. We've parted ways and came back. And then when I came here, I was excited to work with him again. And his mind is great for this game. He understands it. He grew up in it. He gets it. His personality is great for this game. The intangibles. I mean, Suits was the 2012 NLL Transition Player of the Year. He was like the third pick in the draft. He's a player. He could play the game. Um, but the intangibles that come with this as a leader, as someone that when things are going awry on the field and the coach doesn't have to tap someone on the back and say go, and he says, hey, coach, I know I played defense. Let me go take the face off in the offensive side, and I'll take care of this. Or, or he walks over to a guy who might be harassing one of our more skilled players, and he doesn't walk over to the guy who's harassing the skilled player right away. He walks over to their other guy, um, that might be their enforcer and, uh, and, and say, listen, um, listen, you know, knock that off, yeah. Yeah, knock that off. Or he goes to this, their skilled guy and say, go tell your guy to knock it off. Cause you don't want me doing that to you. Mm-hmm. 
And people respect that. Um, those intangibles, that leader, I know I could have picked up the phone and called him and said, hey, uh, give me the pulse of the room. What's going on? What do we need? What's going on? And he would give it to me in a second, good or bad. And I always like to hear bad things because I can't fix bad if I don't know bad. So um, I'm going to miss him. You don't replace him. You hope people can jump into that role a little bit. You know, we got some guys that will fill that role, like Damon Edwards. We went out and signed Damon Edwards this offseason. Damon's, you know, six foot, 190 pounds, and is chiseled. Mm-hmm. But he played. he's been playing in this league for 10 years, and he's the kind of guy that you don't mess with. Mm-hmm. And he's the kind of guy that has a high lacrosse IQ. And it was a big free agency signing for us. Here's a guy who played for the Toronto Rock, who some people will say in, in, in preseason polls, they're one of the teams to beat. But he believed what we were doing here and building something from scratch and wanting to be part of our foundation that he left Toronto after 10 years to come play here with a team that was one in 12 last year and hasn't played in 18 months. So that's a big one. Um, we made a trade for a young kid that we like we want to develop. And this kid is uh, fits that mold. He's 6'6", 6'6", 225 pounds, Matt Marigny. And we made a trade for a guy like that. When you're one in 12, you got to make strategic trades. Mm-hmm. When you're one in 12, you got to make strategic free agent signings and you got to pick really well in the draft. So I think we've done that and we've kind of melded a good group of young guys with a good group of middle, middle age guys Mm -hmm. and good group of veteran guys. That's really the big puzzle that come, that comes into play. You know, our leader, Dan McCray, he's our captain. I mean, he's been, he's won a championship. He is one of the best defensemen in the league. He was a second team all pro last year. Um, on a one in 12 team that should tell you what kind of player he is. Yeah. Um, do things like that. Get a guy like Callum Crawford, who was with me in new England, runner up two years in a row to the MVP left the team that was eight and three, who arguably probably could have won the championship if COVID didn't come. And Callum came to a one in 12 team to help us build this here and, and understood what we were doing and believed in our vision. Um, those are, there's a guy that I think everyone on Long Island's going to love. And we made a trade at the expansion draft to pick up Scott Dominey, six foot 185. They call him the Flash because he, he's probably one of the fastest guys in the league. But he's also that gritty, get in your face, fight you, buzz kill, like a buzzsaw. Mm-hmm. And the people in Long Island are going to love Scott Dominey. He is going to be a fan favorite, a cold favorite. He is Long Island in that whole thing, that little underdog living outside of New York and not going to have anyone mess with him, but then he's going to fly up the floor and score two goals like he did the other night. Those are the kind of guys we were looking for. That's great. I have a list of guys now that I can keep an eye on. So, uh, so I love hearing that <laughs> At one guy who you guys have, uh, have marketed like crazy. And I, and we've talked about the physical players, but it sounds like you guys have a, a potential stud in Jeff Teat. So I know nothing about Jeff other than that he is, uh, I mean, a superstar in the making or a superstar in the present. Tell me a little bit about Jeff Teat. Well, uh, Jeff is a once-in-a-generation player. He is generational. He is the one good thing about being 1-12 in 12 is you get to pick first in the draft. And this was his year to come out. And I can tell you what kind of player he is when every team in the league calls you before you pick him and or even after you pick him and says, what do you want for him? My roster is open. Tell me what you want and we'll give it to you. And my response and Jimmy's response to him was, there's one guy who used to walk on water. And unless you have him, I don't know how, why would we, we ever trade Jeff T. And I don't want to put any undue expectations on Jeff and put more pressure on him. 
but he's a special human being. He's a special kind of a, a player. Fans are going to love him. I'll give you an example, two examples. There's a thing called major series lacrosse. So in the summer, when our league is over, most of the players in our league go to live in Canada, play in a thing called major series lacrosse. So it's like the NLL of the summer up north. Jeff, as a rookie, went into that league and led the league in scoring against the same players that are playing in this league. Wow. And then this year got drafted into the outdoor league, the PLL, and led a team from last place into the playoffs, won rookie of the year, and was in the running for the MVP. He was one of the leading scorers in the league. Jeez. And he's just as good, if not better, at indoor lacrosse than he is uh, field lacrosse. And when you see the things he can do and you watch him play, you're going to be I, – I can't believe a human being can do that with a ball and a stick. And, and again, I told Jeff when we signed him here, um, I, I've been in the Nassau Coliseum now for you know, a couple of years, and there's a lot of banners up there. I want to retire his number up there in those rafters next to a bunch of championships. That is uh, – man, oh, man. I am uh, – I'm anxious to see this kid because I'm always going to appreciate the physical players, but even uh, someone like myself who likes to jam and likes the sandpaper, when you get a player like that – uh, you know, and, and because I've never played lacrosse, it'll just seem even more amazing to me. And, uh, I'm really anxious to, uh, to see him. So, uh, I'll, I'll tell everybody the home opener, the, the Riptide home opener is this Saturday, December 4th at the Nassau Coliseum at 730. Uh, Rich, this has been a great chat with you. I'm really happy we reconnected. And, uh, this is the opportunity I would, I would ask you, I mean, you've really done a great job of pumping up the team here. I'm pumped up. I can't wait to see him. Uh, is there anything else you want to tell the folks here? Listen, I, I, I speak. I speak from the hip. I don't uh, hide anything. I'm a pretty much an open book. Um, we weren't very good when we were, when I got here, we were one in 12. We had five or six home games. We won one home game. Um, we were last in the league in almost everything. I can tell you this, this team will not be one in 12. This team will be, we have a plan in place. We've put together some really good pieces. What's going to happen on the field is going to be very, very exciting. Very, very exciting. And I want this team to be like what years ago the Islanders fans had and what they did. Like my wife, again, I've talked a little bit about her. Her family were from New Jersey, but her family was huge Islanders fans. And the best memories her four brothers have is with her father watching those four Stanley Cup runs. And that team became Long Island's team. That was their hometown quote-unquote team. And that's where memories were made. I want to be that to a new a new generation of fans. We're the number one um, tenant in that building now, Nassau Coliseum. We're the number one tenant. We're the only professional lacrosse team on Long Island. These are the best athletes in the world. For for hockey players, if if you know who for hockey people, if you know who Connor McDavid is, that's Jeff T. If you know who Wayne Gretzky was, that's Callum Crawford. You are seeing those type of people in lacrosse at the Nassau Coliseum starting on Saturday. These are the greatest athletes in the world at their respective sport. On top of that, nonstop music, mascot, dancers, fun, T-shirts, videos, all of that. This is the place you want to be on a Saturday night. And the good thing is, is that we were able to get eight Saturdays. We have eight Saturday nights. And we're going to be doing little kids playing beforehand. And we're going to be doing games at halftime. And we're going to be doing men's league at night. And we have a sandbar where you can come and get happy hour beforehand. 
And you're going to see the best lacrosse in the world. This is the best lacrosse in the world. So I'm excited. And I was, that was one of the reasons that um, I, I took this job was I wanted to build something um, somewhat from scratch, even though we had an inaugural season, but to put our stamp on it and um, playing in a big city like New York, it's exciting. It, it's going to be really, really exciting. So I encourage you, if you have not seen our sport, come watch it. You will watch it once. You will be hooked and you will want to stay because there's violence. There's, pageantry there is skill there is fun there are games i wear i wear two hats if someone left this arena saying did we win four to three or five to three and but i had a great time and i met the mascot and i got an autograph i got a ball i got this i got that great i'm coming back and then there's the other part of me that wants to win every single game and if you like high scoring um in, in our in our in our room when the coaches and I talk and the GM talks, our goal is to keep the other team under 10 goals and for us to score over 12 goals. So you like goals, you like fighting, you like nonstop action. You, you like all that. This is the sport to be involved with. 516-402-3006, NewYorkRiptide.com. Also uh, Nassau Coliseum box office. Everybody go get your tickets. Rich, this was awesome, man. I'm actually pretty pumped up. Uh, you're a great ambassador for not only the team, but for the sport. Uh, it was great reconnecting with you, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Joe, it was my pleasure at all times. I'm excited to, to see you see face-to-face again and, and, and see you on the island here. Who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? 15 years ago that we'd be both in uh, both on the island doing this. <laughs> That's crazy, man. That's crazy. So best of luck with everything this year, man. And uh, Thanks, we'll talk brother. soon. I'll see you later. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye now. Thanks again to Rich. I had a lot of fun reminiscing and uh, learning firsthand about Rich's career and uh, getting excited about the upcoming season with the Riptide. I have to be honest, uh, you know, when I said when I said I wanted to get into it, I wasn't half-assing it. I wasn't bullshitting it. Uh, I mean it when I say I want to jump in head first because uh, I think this could be a really exciting year. And um, as I said before in the intro, speaking to Nolan Clayton, who was with the Riptide at the time of the interview, and now speaking to Rich, uh, I am definitely ready to go with this uh, with this team and with the sport. So uh, just a reminder, if you're interested, uh, the home opener is this Saturday, December 4th at 7.30 against Rochester. Uh, if you're interested in tickets, check out NewYorkRiptide.com. Phone number is 516 402 3006 or check it out at the Nassau Coliseum box office. If you enjoyed uh, what you just heard, please consider subscribing to the show. Uh, Consider giving it a like. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show gives the show greater visibility. And um, and who doesn't want that? Right. So, uh, so next time I talk to you, there'll be at least one lacrosse game, uh, under under the belt here, and uh, and I'll definitely touch on that, especially if I uh, if I'm in attendance. And until then, everybody out there, please stay safe.